Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 136. I have invited a wonderful regenerative and biodynamic farmer, Charlie Arnott, uh, also a passionate champion in this space and an educator and a real community builder. I've been following Charlie on Instagram since a an old school friend actually uh, alerted me to his work and the wonderful things he was doing in the farming community when we had our 25-year reunion last year. So it was great to be able to get that hot tip. And uh, Charlie and I have been instamates ever since. And uh, and it was just a, a, a natural thing for me to bring him on the show. As you guys know, I bring farmers on the show every now and then because I really think uh, the more transparency that we have around our food system, whether or not you eat meat, uh, is paramount and really we want to make sure that we are supporting people who are being good custodians of our land, uh, ethical uh, custodians of animals if they choose to farm for meat uh, or other animal products. And, uh, and it's always inspiring to hear a story of change when the world keeps trying to tell us that we need pesticide and herbicide use at the levels we're currently using and more – uh, to farm profitably and to feed the world, Charlie helps us uh, peel back the layers of the holes in that argument and shows us that actually through regenerative and biodynamic agriculture, we can make ourselves as farmers more resilient. Uh, well, I'm not a farmer personally, but I just mean for the farmer themselves uh, in a, a, a world where mental health concerns are a really massive issue for our farmers in times of drought and all the stress that that can bring, um, but also to make our land more resilient uh, through regenerative and biodynamic agriculture. So it's a really wonderful chat today, and uh, it's a long one. It's definitely two cups of tea or a big long walk or folding every piece of laundry that you've been putting off for the last five days. It's uh, it's one of those, or a mix of all of the above activities. I'll, uh, I'll leave it to you to decide what you do while you have a listen, but I know you'll enjoy the show. I want to remind you that you have one more week to make the most of this month's show sponsor, Goodness Me Box. Thank you so much to Peter and her team for jumping on board as our sponsor this month. Goodness Me Box is Australia's leading health food sampling box and they deliver uh, about seven or to ten, somewhere in that window each month, depending on sizes and, and all of that kind of stuff, uh, of boutique health products and samples to your door just for $25. Uh, they also have a nut-free kids box that is only $11.95 and that one has free shipping. So we have $10 off their box uh, with the Lotox Life 10 code. And if you book the three or the six month uh, subscription, you even have the shipping waived, shipping fees waived. Um, it's definitely a great way to keep uh, in the know about good organic packaged products. Um, they're all genetically modified free uh, ingredients and they really work hard. You know, when you look at their guidelines as to who they will and won't partner with, they're very, very thorough. And, uh, and if you need to grab the odd packet here and there or want to make sure that the crackers you're buying for your kids or, or, or the tin of coconut milk you buy for your kids or the nut butter, whatever it might be, uh, they keep you in the know about what's good versus what's really full of weirdness. 
uh, and uh, and it's a great little service. There's often some wonderful um, some wonderful things in there that uh, I'm always surprised to see. So enjoy that for one more week, and all the details are in the show notes as well. But you can just jump onto the Goodness Me Box website from Google and pop in Lotox Life Ten in the checkout to get ten dollars off a box. Now, uh, I think I'm just going to jump straight into this show. I don't have too much else to tell you this week. So enjoy this chat with Charlie. I loved it very much. And, uh, and it makes me feel happy in the world to know that we have such wonderful farmers out there, not only doing it for themselves, but helping create community and education to support farmers and give them the confidence to start trying some of these uh, approaches that are more in line with nature, better for people, better for animals, and much better for our planet. Enjoy, guys. Hello, Charlie. How are you? I'm well, Alex. Thank you. I am so excited for this chat. Uh, we've been Instagram buddies for a while now, and I thought it was time to to formalise the friendship with a good old-fashioned podcast. So welcome. Uh, Alex, um Thanks for having me. I've been following your your uh, your journey with interest too, so um, a real honour to be uh, to be speaking with you today. Yeah, it's awesome. Now let's start. Uh, I want to ask you how many tins of Arnott's Bickies did you have lying around at home <laughs> growing up? Um, we had quite a few, Alex. As you'd imagine, <laughs> my um, I we had lots in, in our family home, and also when we used to visit my grandparents in Sydney, we were at Burrawa. Um, there'd always be plenty of biscuits there in the pantry, but also my grandfather would often um, be given new samples and things that they were testing. Um, so we'd be we'd be pretty chuffed about testing some of the new ones. That, a lot of them didn't even get to market. So yeah, there's always plenty of uh, plenty of supply, and, and everyone at school would always ask me to bring back packets for um, you know from the holidays back to school. So I bet yeah, we no, had um... never in short supply. Yeah, yeah, totally. We had. Uh, um... The Darrell Lee son in our was one of the dads of our class, and so we got to go to the Darrell Lee factory when I was a kid, and that's just you know one of those quintessential other quintessential Aussie brands, and you just felt like all oh, your Christmases had come at once, being <laughs> being able to go. So fond we, we 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 did go to the factory at, at the Homebush uh, once. We had a had a tour, mm-hmm. and it was wonderful just walking through the on the factory floor. You know, when I was looking, putting our fingers in the big vats of, I, of uh, icing and jam and, and so on. <laughs> And uh, for the um, uh, the Monte Carlos and so on, so it was yeah, it was quite surreal, but uh, good fun. Yeah, nice. And um, why did your dad leave the family biscuit business? Um, great question. He his mother, my grandmother, was um, from the country um, near Moree at a place mm-hmm. called Binagai, and so she was a country girl. And and dad. Um, he he always I guess he always wanted to be a country boy and and, and in, in holidays and even when he um, took t- took uh, time out from his job at the factory um, would go to a family property at um, St George near Durham Bandy mm-hmm. um, called Yamburger and so he his real love was the bush um, and I guess it was through his you know uh, it was a bit of a rite of passage that he worked in the factory and he did he did that for eight years at Homebush uh, but he was. Um, he 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 hung up his uh, uh, his jacket, um, you know, eight years into into his apprenticeship, and, and said he wanted to go to the bush, and he did. Uh, and it was always always something he wanted to do. 
Yeah, amazing. And so did you feel called to the land kind of after him, like growing up um, with that transition yourself and having witnessed your dad have that transition? Was it just natural that you were going to step into a farming role yourself? Yeah, Alex, it was very natural. I, 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 To be honest, I didn't think I was going to do anything else. I mean, mm. I guess for a while I probably didn't think there was much else. It was it was such a – I had such a wonderful – childhood i have to say um at our at our um our farm at uh, burrow which is where i you know born and, and grew up um with my brother mark and and and, and mum and dad and it was it was a lot of special memories there so it was a very natural thing for me to um to finish school i had a year off after school and i did rural science uh, a, uh, a um, degree at uh, une at armadale and so i was definitely that trajectory was already set really um and it was when I finished that course, did a couple of years in Sydney, and then in 1997, I think it was, I went home for, for, two, much, for two months, for November, December. I was going to do shearing and harvest. Um, that was sort of the next chapter of my life as I saw it. And again, you know, that was a natural, natural thing to do. Uh, but I was also thinking, well, I need to get experience elsewhere, but stay in the rural industry. And then... Literally ten years later, I woke up one morning and went, "My God, I'm still here." You know, <laughs> ten years later, but it was comfortable. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't like a conscious thing. It was just, I guess, I did it unconsciously because it was comfortable to do, and and absolutely no regrets. Mm. And so obviously, you know, time goes on, and you you've learnt the ropes of your rural sides, and then on the farm, farming conventionally back then. Very conventionally, Alex. Yeah, we were. Um, at Burrow, you know, a lot of farms are mixed farms, so they, they we're, we're you know, cropping, making um, hay, um, sheep, um, cattle, uh, and all you know different enterprises within within beef and, and the sheep sort of um, businesses, and lots of chemical use, lots of machinery, burning lots of diesel, um, and that again was was what I was used to. That was that was farming in Burrow and on our place, and that's what Dad did. And um, to me, it was a that's just what I, I, I learned from him and that's why we did it for, for quite some years after I got home. Yeah, and was there a bit of an aha, like a big bang moment for you that you maybe you witnessed something else out there? I, I'm keen, I'm always keen to see when people do make the switch because it helps other farmers potentially considering it or curious get a better insight mm. into that mental journey because it's often a, a very mental journey before a physical one, right? You're thinking a lot before you would actually carry out change. Yeah, it's, it's a great question and it, it's, um, you know, I, I say that you know, you've got to change the paddock between your ears before you can change your yeah, practices I out love in that. the paddock. So good. Yeah, so, and for me it was it was probably, it was a combination of a couple of things. It was quite a slow burn. Like I, I went home in 1997 and for, you know, some years, again, doing things very conventionally, um, which was, you know, I guess working in the context of what, 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 what I knew to be working at that point in time. Um, however, you know, we went through uh, a number of, tough years with drought and so on um and th so there was a there was a slow burn of, of of challenge along the way um i was sort of slowly getting my head around this whole you know use of chemicals and what the what the side effects were i mean you know human health and also the environment um there was a cost structure of a, a i guess a conventional business where you're 
you, you know, there's a lot of inputs, a lot of costs, mm. um, and and hopefully a lot of outputs as well. But that's 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 the definition of I guess conventional farmers. There's a lot of turnover, a lot of activity, a lot of a lot of reliance on other people, whether they're selling your chemical or fertilizer or you know, using agents to sell and buy stock. There's a lot of I guess complication that over time. Um, I didn't. It, it, it did, I wasn't comfortable with that over time. It was like this is. I'm. I'm. I'm so not in control of 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 my business and a lot of the factors and the 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 the, uh, the, the variations or variables in my business. I wasn't in control with, which is which is what working with nature essentially is. But other people were making decisions or the, their actions were really uh, influencing the outcome of what I was doing in my business and that just wasn't sitting as comfortably with me as it was, you know, when I when I started there. And I guess a pivotal moment for me was uh, in about 2004, I saw an advertisement in the, in the local newspaper, the Borough News, uh, that headlined profiting from the drought. And that for me I, I just didn't believe that was impossible, so I thought that this this would be a bit of a bit of a joke. So I went along, and it was put on by um, a business at uh, Yapoon in Queensland called Resource Consulting Service. Um, and it, it, I got to say, it was a, it was pivotal. It changed my life in that one day. In that it made me start questioning what I was currently doing, and it wasn't making what I was doing wrong. It was just making me think about asking myself better questions. Mm. And I always say that to people that you know. The, we can always ask ourselves better questions. That always leads to better answers. And and I was at a point in time I'd done quite a few years at home as the manager, um, doing things conventionally. There'd been this sort of slow burn of questioning. You know, what you know, am I doing the right thing? What am I doing to the environment? What am I doing to the ecology? And this one day, um, then sort of um, catapulted me into uh, a month later a course called Grazing for Profit. Uh, which is a week-long course that was only an hour at Cowra that was um, nearby, so it was easy to get to. And I went to that because I realised in that one-day um, course that, um, you know, there, I essentially there, were, there was a different way of doing things. Because I was relying on so many other people in my business to give me answers, whether it was agronomy, um, you know, accountancy or, or um, uh, you know, production sort of um, um, uh, advice and information, um, I was really beholden to to a lot of things that uh, a I didn't know much about, and b you know I wasn't in control of. But then I sat back and thought, you know, I realised, I guess, suddenly that there were other ways of doing things. It was really important to ask myself better questions, and and I had some paradigms um, that were uh, that were setting the course of, of my journey and my life. Really, that I that I started to question and realised weren't necessarily serving me as an individual or as a, as a business owner or, or, or as a manager of the landscape or not a manager. I guess it was managing but more of a, a steward of the landscape that, that um, was our property. So that one week was pivotal again because it then it was very intense, really full-on stuff but life-changing. And as I say to people, um, it's not just life-changing, it's life-saving because – you know, you, there's just too many stories of, of farmers who, um, you know, they don't they don't know where else to go. You know, whether it's a drought or it's a finance situation, they're generally linked. Um, you know, this course gave me the tools, uh, even in a week. You know, it gave me tools 
and changed paradigms and changed the paddock between my ears profoundly so that I was making much better decisions, you know, and I was, I was focusing on what I was in control of because mm. so much of my life and, and my farming business to that point had been focused on what wasn't, I wasn't in control of essentially, you know, and relying on others. So it really empowered me as a farmer, as, as an individual and made me look at, um, it gave me a whole different lens to look at my life, not just my farm. Mm, interesting. And, and that is such a metaphor for, um, for really the idea of starting to become a better critical thinker and question things more and go deeper into why we do what we do um, and how we do it because you see that um, awakening happening for someone's, say, health challenge, but it has an impact across their whole life and all their relationships because they've seen a new way of thinking that then helps so many other areas of life. Mm. Um, and so I'm curious to see what did you change first? What was the very first thing you um, thought, okay, let's start doing this? Well, I guess, again, it was, it was what I changed. I changed my thinking was, was the first way, you know, how I made decisions. I was, you know, I, to make a decision, one needs data, the data, they need information. Mm. And then the other thing they needed is goals, you know, and when you have goals um, set and you have information to um, uh, to combine with with goals, then you can make decisions. So up to that point, I hadn't really set myself many goals. I had plenty of data. data I probably didn't really know how to, how to use it. So I got to I got to understand what I what information was best for me to to understand and use. But then I, the whole process of setting a vision for my business and myself, and for setting goals. You know, they might be production goals, they might be um, uh, ecological goals, and really being clear on aligning those goals with my values and again up to that point I hadn't really considered values my 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 personal values which then lead to the creation of you know, business values you know I, I didn't I couldn't answer if I said what are your top five values I wouldn't have without a clue so you know getting really clear on the basic stuff that yeah. was the change I made um, and then there was some sort of operational stuff uh, that I did relating to you know putting all my animals um, you know sheep and cattle into into the same sort of into the same mobs instead of having six or seven different uh, mobs of cattle, for instance, um, roaming our paddocks, and basically set stocking paddocks. So those stock are in those paddocks for long periods of time. I I, I put those mobs together, you know, or most of the cows, all in one mob, which means that I had um, uh, more cattle in 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 areas, which which meant that they were in areas for shorter periods of time, which which um, uh, meant that grass can rest for longer, which is one of the one of the uh, the principles of of um, holistic farm management and, and and grazing management, which is what we're what we're doing. We were always graziers. We called ourselves graziers for, for many many years, uh, but it's the management and the style of, of of grazing which is really important. And and that was one of the biggest uh, I guess operational changes we made immediately, mm. and so and saw great results too because we were actually letting grass. As I say, we're allowing grass to exp express its grassness. You know, instead of it being nibbled or mowed constantly, uh, it was allowed to recover and grow and you know set seed and 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 be a much more healthy um, pasture base, mm. which was essential in a grazing business. Yeah, and I mean, it's amazing when you look at landscapes where farmers have made this change, uh, like the before and after shots that Joel Salatin shows in his workshops, for example. I'm sure you guys do too. It really is 
I mean, you really see what that one small change can do. And I remember speaking to the wonderful farmer over in New Zealand, Joe Roebuck, and um, uh, yes, I do have that name right. And he was talking about like how how it was counterintuitive to give less space to cows that you would think oh my gosh am I doing something mean here you know we've all heard about factory farming and and overcrowding of sheds and but obviously this is a completely different kettle of fish and what we're doing is we're actually giving them the kind of security and life that they enjoy all being really close together and kind of moving through the grasses as a little pack and um, and I, I thought that was such a beautiful thing to actually, you know, where humans are so naive to think we can just barge in, set up a system thinking we've got it all sorted without actually doing the work to try and understand the system we're trying to cultivate in the first place. I'm constantly amazed by how um, how we've done that in the history and it's always so beautiful to see the waking up and the change that's happening where we're like, okay, let's look at how these animals like to be. Let's look at Mm. how this grass likes to grow and let's actually work with both of those things instead of doing it a way we think we need to do it. Well, that's a great point. It's become, I mean, one of the pillars of what we do is is, is partnering with nature. You know, Mm. we we spent so much time... um, killing stuff you know to grow food which is crazy you know everything we bought had a side at the end of herbicide pesticide and it's you know it's it's counterintuitive to think that you you know can can grow good beautiful healthy produce and food to feed people when you so many of the products you're using in that process uh, and it is a you know that essentially is a process when you look at it like that it's like a factory type arrangement you add this and add that bit of chemistry and away you go you know that was changing from that mindset to um, partnering with nature and actually, you know, um, allowing animals, as you say, to, to to do what they do naturally. And, you know, something that I've really, um, you know, been focusing on um, or for many years now is actually changing my focus on what I'm, what I'm trying to master. You know, we used to try and master nature and we used to, again, with chemical and pesticides and herbicides and, and machinery was be the, be the master master of, of our of our environment and no one ever no one ever beat nature you know we've done a good job at stuffing nature up no one's you know going to, it's like going into battle with um to drought you know no one won um going into battle with drought so we, we the key is to adapt and be and be um to be ready so you know what i what we're focusing on is is not mastering nature but mastering the economics of our business because you know, that's a complete turnaround in a lot of businesses is we're so focused on, on trying to control nature and and that, be, and that being very, very costly and that being very challenging. And if we, if we put our focus on mastering the economics and being price makers, not price takers, mm. then that's where our focus should be and that's where we get results because nature has this by definition it, it, it's 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 always moving towards complexity and by and diversity and the more diverse the nature is the more resilient it is the more synergy there is between all the different layers and the different species and you know when we can just let it be and 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 also listen to it um, and respond accordingly that's where the real power is and empowerment for farmers is now you know as opposed to the you know, the chemical treadmill that 
that we were on and a lot of farmers are on. And that's fine. You know, that's where I was up to. That's where a lot of farmers are up to or were up to in, in their journey. Um, and I'm just grateful that I was, you know, I was ready. I had a attention event, which is um, Charlie Massey's sort of expression for, you know, those trigger points where people just go, I've had enough, you know, mm. I'm not going to do this anymore. Um, and it might be financial, it might be emotional and, and mental, it could be anything but just going, I'm ready for change. And you can't push people there. You can't make people change. They have to be ready. And, and that's exciting because regenerative agriculture, um, that movement is a movement now. It's not just sort of isolated, you know, practitioners here and there doing some great stuff. There's, there's a... There's a um, there's a groundswell. There's a groundswell. There's, there's, so, there's, yeah. there's a push away from conventional agriculture. As I, 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 I say, when I say that, it's like you know, chemical agriculture, industrial agriculture. There's a push away because people are going, I don't want to do this anymore. There's got to be a better way. I'm, I'm tired of this and that. I'm, you know, whether it's the cost structure or the, or the, 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 the environmental impacts of it. And so there's that one force that's pushing people away. But the wonderful thing that we have right now is there's a there's a pull as well as a push. There's a pull towards um, the, the the marketplace, the, the 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 eaters, as I call them, who want food. They want beautiful, fresh, nutritiously dense food. And so, you know, farmers at any stage of their journey are in this wonderful position where there's a lot of incentive to get out of what they're doing if they're conventionally farming. And there's a whole lot of incentive to go towards a regenerative because, you know, no one – I can't remember the, I can't remember anyone ever walking into a grocery shop going, can I have some more um, GMO corn? Uh, can you order that in? Or can I – can you make sure my, my lettuce has had more Roundup sprayed on it? That's just not happening. <laughs> you know, so this is a great thing. You know, we yeah. have this, this groundswell from both ends, you know. Farmers are sick of it. And, 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 you know, the feeders, as I call them, are sick of it, and the eaters want more, you know. They're, mm. they're, hun- they're literally hungry for the good stuff, and, um, and I think that's really exciting. It is really exciting, uh, and, and I think it's only going to get more and more exciting as more and more people wake up. And I love that you quoted Charlie Massey's tension event. It kind of manifests, you know, in the low-tox community, we, we cover quite a bit of stuff uh, across body, mind, food, home. So it's like it's anyone's guess what the next topic's going to be. Um, but I think that tension event manifests itself a lot in people's health journeys, you know. Yeah. Like for me, I remember being 28, being on the merry-go-round of antibiotics and tonsillitis for years yeah. over and over again. And then when the antibiotics stopped working and I was at a critical tension point, um, that's when I discovered there was a new way to do things. So it's really, uh, it's for me, it's key to take these tension points, these mass dissatisfaction moments that we have in life. They're fine as long as we use them as a springboard and don't then go into negative spiraling, I think. Yeah. And that's, a, that's the real kind of... We've got to picture someone's hand extended saying, it's going to be okay, please just step out of where you're at now and come with me and um, surrounding yourself with good people at that point. And that's where, um, you know, we, we, as I say, you know, trees don't grow on hilltops, you know, they, it grows in the valleys and that's where we as individuals grow when we're at our low points and our challenges and our, you know, um, success is paved with, you know, failures basically and not that we like to call the low points failures necessarily but it's, you know, we... Um, 
we have to have these challenges, don't we? It's like muscles. If you don't have the challenges, they won't grow stronger. And we, and this is, you know, exactly the same in farming, that um, it is attention events and it doesn't matter if it's attention event or slow burn and often they do come together. Um, it's the, it's that, um, as you mentioned before, it's the, it's not just so much growing a business and changing operationally, you know, what you're doing. It's actually, it's about breaking down those old paradigms of farming. You know, what, what am I? What am I? And 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 I, it, you know, some years ago, um, I came across the, the expression, "I am not what I do." Um, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, for many years, I thought I was a farmer. You know, like that's what I am. Um, which I still, you know, I still say I'm a farmer, but I, that doesn't um, restrict me or, or 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 govern, you know how I think. I, I, I think I'm an artist. I consider myself an artist. I consider myself an entrepreneur. I consider myself, you know, lots of different things. And I think it's a healthy approach when we're not just defined by what we do. Um, because far, as farmers, we, we are, you know, to get, to be creative and to be, um, we have a we have a canvas and that's our landscape. And, and I think one of the wonderful creative things about being a farmer is we can you know, our, our creativity and our artistry can be reflected in our farm and, and you know, we, we plant a lot of trees and, and we, you know, we care for our landscape and, and that for me is exciting, not just because it has environmental outcomes, but for me in terms of my pride of what I do and how I spend my time and, you know, I'm not just a farmer, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun. Mm. Beautiful. Um, so... We've talked about grazing and how that was kind of the first thing you mastered and the way you moved uh, cattle through the paddocks. When did biodynamics come into play for you in a major way? Uh, Alex, um, biodynamics, I was, I, I'd was i heard about biodynamics somehow over over the years. Um, I think at, in, at university, in a four-year full-on course, we probably talked about it for five minutes in one lecture about <laughs> organics. It's kind of like doctors all... and nutrition, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. They talk about food for like two yeah. seconds. Um, so, yeah, similar. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. But the um, – so I knew I knew it existed, uh, but it wasn't until, again, through the, um, the RCS, the Resource Consulting Service, sort of framework of peer support, programs that they provide to farmers that I met um, Hamish Mackay who's who is has been you know involved in the biodynamics movement and, and world in Australia for at least 45 years um, as a as a as a as a farmer and a practitioner and also an educator so I met him at one of the RCS conferences in about 2005 or 6 um, and, and it just really resonated um, for me um, you know Hamish went pretty hard at that uh, at that conference he was you know, he was speaking to so-called, you know, top, top-notch top farmers um, and he really took them to the literally the end of the cosmos and back. Um, and, you know, a lot of people um, uh, it didn't resonate with, but for me it really did and, and it created a lot of, I guess, it answered some questions. It, it probably created a lot more more questions, but it, it, it created for me some structure or around, I guess, this partnership with nature you know, because it's not just about what you see, it's also how you feel, how, how it makes you feel, you know, the understanding the different, I guess, aspects of life as we see it, you know, the resonance of life literally. So um, it was a beautiful, added a lot of colour to what we were doing um, and what I was doing as a farmer. And, again, it really it was, 
it created a wonderful relationship with nature that I hadn't had before. You know, it was probably from that point that I realised that partnering with nature was really smart, you know, and, and the killing stuff wasn't. Mm. Um, That's really and it was, interesting. Sorry, I just want to pause you there because yeah. partnering with nature, is, like I'm picturing the conventional model now as a toddler running a farm and then having a tanty when it doesn't go its way, when nature doesn't yeah. fall in line. But then I'm picturing you as like the Steiner kid who just kind of, when things don't go your way, you roll around in it and try and figure it out with nature instead of being pissed yeah. off that it's not doing what you want it to do. It's like a really different yep. vibe. It's beautiful. Well, that's a, that's a good way to put it because it really, you know, we, we are, to think we can master nature is is really foolish. Um, uh it's been here for a lot longer than we have. It is a, such a complex and amazing thing, you know, uh, that for us to think that we um, uh, look, we can spray stuff and get a result. And you know, we we create a yield and grow a crop or whatever it is. But you know, when you look at it holistically, which is really again this grazing for profit course I did um, all those years ago was 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 making me stand back and look at look at my business and my. My my role in that holistically, you know, when we do look at look at nature holistically, there's no there's really no other way to look at it because you can't just segment and and silo parts of nature because it's all so intertwined. So yeah, I like, I like that that um, you know and and ro literally rolling with it and going okay, how can I adapt to this challenge? And it's like drought, you know, we we um, uh, one of the things we do is. Um, uh, one of the things we do is um, – so I'm just getting another call through here. Is that you? Can you hear me no, still? can't hear a thing about the other call. That's okay, and I'll edit oh, this good. a little that's bit right. out. No problems. No, no, that's great because I just didn't want to – that's great. Um, so one of the – one of the. Um, uh, I was forgetting what I was going there now. Um, <laughs> what a bummer. Oh, no. Um, okay, so what was I? What was I – what did I just say? <laughs> Um, no, I've lost my train Oh, yeah, yeah, thought. no, no. I think I remember what it was now. Okay, cool. Um, let me just gather my thoughts here for a second. Um, yeah, so, so one of the things that we do in our business is we, you know, we, we're really conscious to adapt to, uh, to adapt to nature and adapt to the seasons. So, you know, instead of um, uh, hoping it's going to rain and focusing on the fact that it hasn't rained, we focus on, well, when it does rain, how are we going to use that the best? You know, how do we actually capture that rain so it falls and stays right where it lands? You know, because that water is much more valuable to me. Um, and as as a as water for that plant uh, in my pasture than running down a creek and going to my neighbours or 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 going into one of my dams even. So, you know, it's 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 about the response and the and the and the preparation for. Um, this partnership or how we actually partner with nature is all about, well, I'm just going to listen to nature. I'm going to be really a really you know, keen observer and I'm going to learn from nature because nature is constantly teaching us about, you know, the, um, the response that we would be appropriate for us to have in the event that this happens or that happens, you know. So, okay, it's going to rain. We don't know when, but when it does, I know what I'm going to do with that rain. Um, and that's going to benefit nature because it fall, you know, landing and staying there is going to is, is, is going to be a benefit to the pasture, not down in someone else's dam and you know, or down in the ocean. There's enough of that. There's enough going down the rivers anyway. Um, well, obviously, we need flow in rivers, and that's a really important thing. Uh, but in terms of the 
the, the inches of rain that fall at Hanaminnow at our place at Burrawa, like that's, I want to be able to, I'm a, I'm a rain harvester, you know, I'm, I capture sunshine um, and I turn that into grass and, and I turn that into meat. And that's really, you know, we don't need to get too much more complicated than that. Mm. And can you give us a bit of a, a 101 on biodynamics for people who aren't familiar? Because I know, you know, people might have seen like a cow horn on Instagram and a bunch of farmers like filling the horns <laughs> with something and going, ah, yeah, that's just not going to work. For what me. is that, that about? Dippy stuff. And, but <laughs> I'd love to um, just give those people a, a 101 because I, I never like leaving yeah, people sure. behind on these terms just in case oh certainly um well rudolf steiner in um in uh 1924 he in in austria or germany i think it was or maybe on the border of the two he gave a lecture to um a number of uh german farmers who at that point in time they'd been in the sort of npk the sort of chemical fertilizer uh, regime or, or, or world for some years and, and um, uh, very sort of a science-based um, chemistry-related um, uh, practice, which is fine. Um, however, they were seeing that, you know, using these, these, these fertilisers, essentially man-made fertilisers, wasn't producing the yields and the, and the nutritious food that they had when they were using, you know, the traditional you know, manuring and, and natural so they, it's like organic practices. So they asked him to do a series of lectures about how they could improve their, their practices and, and, and what they could change. And so from that, um, Rudolf uh, um, uh, outlined uh, a number of different practices relating to biodynamics, which basically involve, um, uh, some of them involve the composting of cow manure. Uh, one, yes, using a cow horn. Um, so it's that small, um, well, some horns are quite big, but, you know, a, a vessel where lactating cow manure is put in a cow horn and that's put in the ground over winter. And what, there's a science side of biodynamics and there's a more cosmic, I guess, uh, side of biodynamics. So the science is really that cow manure is composting in, the, in a horn in the ground and that's a very basic thing, I think, for people to understand is that, um, you know, worms go in there, there's the... There's the, the biology that's already in the soil, and that basically compost goes from a bright green, you know, sloppy manure to a beautiful, rich, dark compost. Um, the significance of the horn was a number of those. Um, it, it's essentially not just a vessel, but it's actually a it's a it's an amplifier of some resonance and energy. Um, this is sort of you know relating to um, the other planets, just as the moon. Uh, um, influences tides on Earth and various other things. Um, the other outer planets uh, and inner planets um, do influence life on Earth as well, and, and especially in the plant kingdom. So that's one of the, the preparations. There's also a cow manure concentrate, which is another essentially a, 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 a composting of manure in the ground. And there's biodynamic compost preparations, and there's six of them. And they're essentially herbs, six herbs that are um, composted, as it were, or fermented in different um, uh, organs um, of animals. So, for instance, oak bark, literally the, the bark of an oak tree, is, is uh, stuffed in a, in a cow's skull and put in water for six months um, over the winter. Um, and then that's extracted out of, the, out of that skull after six months and that creates, that's one of the, um, the preparations. And, and there's five others um, and what they do, those, those six compost preparations, um, they're, they're basically a herb that's been composted and they 
when put into a compost heap, um, create organisational structure. Like just as organs in our body have function, our heart, our lungs, our, our digestive system has a function, a specific function in our body, our liver and so on. When these herbs are put into a compost heap, it could be a big heap, it could be a small heap, um, or, or other liquid preparations, it, it's basically infusing that heap with 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 organ an organisational structure so that that heap functions and composts and is created almost as one body, almost like a living body, as it were. Um, so, I mean, that's getting to sort of the, the sticky end of it all, but, you know, there's, there's again, we're, we're sourcing... One of the wonderful things about biodynamics is we're sourcing products from our from our farms, you know, cow manure and some herbs. We're creating our own fertiliser, if I can use that sort of expression, and then we're using that to 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 increase and improve the biology and the fertility of our land. So it's a very closed loop. You can't maybe yeah, get all. Yeah, I was going to say it's a real loops. circular input output situation. Totally, and that's really you know that's 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 one of the I guess the hallmarks of regenerative agriculture is mm. is not relying on others for your inputs and using the resources on your farm. And look, you know anyone with a cow knows how much manure those those creatures, <laughs> um, you know, um, <laughs> create. So you know using it, and, and and you don't need a hell of a lot of it. Like the, with the the horn manure five hundred, you need you know fifteen to fifty grams per hectare. Of this stuff, and you stir. So, getting wow. back to the one oh BD one biodynamics one oh one, you know, fifty grams of of, of the five hundred or the hormone your five hundred stirred in water for an hour, just to create um, the, the the it, it vitalizes and energizes and oxygenates and ionizes the water that stirring motion. You just put that onto that's what you then spray onto your country or or the cow manure concentrate. Um, you might use 150 grams a hectare. It's still, it's still a very small amount. And in terms of the economics of it, it's you know people who are considering spreading single super phosphate uh, on their country. Um, if you have to buy this these um, biodynamic um, preparations from someone else, they're still half the cost of using single super. Oh, um, wow. And you don't get and you, and you don't get the yeah and you don't get the acidification problems of uh, single super and so on. Um, if you make it yourself, well, it's just the time and the um, – you don't need fancy gear to do this either, to spray these the, the biodynamic comp- compost uh, – the biodynamic preparations out. You just – we just use a fire truck with a tank and a, and, a, and a pump and a nozzle, a very basic nozzle. So, you know, the, to try and summarise that, I guess, Alex, it's, it's very cheap it's 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 as you say it's, it's essentially a closed loop system you're using your own resources you create some ritual which are really lost in farming some some really nature connecting rituals um, in businesses because we're so removed from nature generally um, in farming um, which is cheap, ironic and, isn't it well this is yeah. it you know we're like our, our biggest most influential partner we we're not working with, but when you're using biodynamics and, and, and other organic, it's not to say this is the only um, practice that involves nature and partnering with it, but I guess the biodynamics for me is a step up from organic because um, you're actually, there's a different intention. There's a different, I mean, organic um, uh, organic farming doesn't necessarily um, involve some of these, literally some of these other elements that we're trying to draw into making these compost or liquid preparations. And um, often organic or certified organic produce or farms 
Uh, I say organic by default because they've just essentially removed the chemical use. You know, they're not actively, not necessarily actively putting fertility in or, or adding um, uh, ingredients to, to, to replace, I guess, what the chemicals were trying to do in terms of fertiliser and so on. So, you know, and once you've got the wonderful thing with biodynamics is once you've got the system healthy again, it's like self-perpetuating, it's self-sustaining. You know, the, the biology and the healthy bacteria and fungus, that's what's feeding the plants. And healthy plants then feed sugars back to the, the biota in the soil. And then it's just this wonderful functioning thing. It's nature at its best, you know. So I guess that's, that's look, that's some of the, you know, that's that's the, that's the summary of, of, of biodynamics. And, I mean, there's other aspects to that which, again, are a bit more... Um, esoteric and cosmic but um you know i'm i'm really comfortable with even just the science side of it because there's a lot of a lot of science relating to biodynamics and a lot of people um uh, don't think so but for me you know I, i'm i'm a scientist that's i got a degree in rural science and i i see the uh, not just the benefit but i see the the the, the basic um science of it working because it's it's it is grounded in in a fair bit of science mm, absolutely and um, so a lot of large-scale farmers might often sort of say, well, that's fine for a small farm, um, but, you know, I run a serious large-scale business here. Is it possible on a grand scale and profitable? Absolutely. Um, again, the principles apply whether it's a, it's a you know, little raised bed in someone's backyard or 5,000 acres. Wow. Um, the principles apply. You obviously need more. You've got more land to cover if you've mm. got, you know, 5,000 acres. Two uh, fire or, trucks, or, perhaps. Or, or more. <laughs> yeah, two fire trucks. <laughs> well, you just have to, you know, a bit more, a bit more water to add yeah, to the, yeah. uh, the, the, the preparations to, to, to then stir and put out. Um, so, yeah, look, you know, it's a good point. You know, someone with 500 acres has probably got the same fire truck as a person with 5,000. So um, there's not a great um, uh, capital outlay for the, for the infrastructure. And, and, again, if you've got, a larger property, you've probably got more cows. You can probably make more manure. And if you haven't and your neighbour's got cattle, well, you just go over there one day with a case of beer and say, look, can I give you a case of beer and get a couple of wheelbarrowfuls of manure? And, you know, like this is this is the, I guess, the economy we're talking about is, is um, you know, partnering with not just your, 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 with nature but with your community. And it's one of the wonderful things that, that we're seeing and we're, we're creating, I guess, is that, um, there are uh, we hold um, gatherings, get-togethers, and, and preparation-making events uh, in spring and autumn. And those that might uh, attend our autumn um, uh, preparation-making workshops, um, if they come to our spring ones, they actually get to take home what they've what they what they made what they started creating six months before. So, you know, we're also fostering these wonderful communities and centres of we call you know centres of excellence, as it were, where people know. That seasonally, we're having these gatherings. We're swapping stories. We're 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 asking better questions. We're seeing what people are actually doing, and that creates. And that's another thing I think that's that's really lacking in, um, you know, rural communities or farming communities is this collegiate attitude to what we're doing. We're all we don't want to be in competition with people. We want to be working together and and all doing better jobs at creating more nutritionally dense food, you know, whether that's a carrot or a cow, you know, that's, that's our, that's our ultimate outcome. And, 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 you know, humans are, you know, strongest and we, it's in our nature to be part of a community. And 
you know, the biodynamic community is just, it's really growing and it's such a wonderful part, um, uh, a lovely community part of. Yeah, and I think if you take the comparison and the competition out of it, you only strengthen a region, which then strengthens the selling power as a region to um, people buying. And, um, you know, you can create amazing trails, visiting uh, trails. Like, it just opens up so much if people start working together. And I, totally. think, um, I think our society has gone into this crazy idea that we're all these tiny four, five, six-person families behind a closed door. No one's even borrowing a cup of sugar anymore to make some cookies. Like it's, you know, you just get people talking again and we realise how much we've all got in common and how much we can all help each other. It's a bit scary, isn't it? Mm. Um, uh, you know, I mean, that's, again, it's another big conversation. But, I, again, I think the lovely thing that I've found in the – not just the biodynamic world, but the regenerative agriculture world is a very, very transparent, very open-minded um, and generous, you know, generous um, uh, community of people. And um, and that's really exciting because I said before, it, that's growing. And if, we've, if there's more people in our communities that are of that mindset and of that thinking, then this, you know, there's, there's literally an, ex- it feels like there's an exponential grow- growth of regenerative agriculture out there because, um there's sort of like there's it's it's in for me it's a bit of a no-brainer like i don't no one's been able to sort of say to me oh look um it's actually the wrong path or there's a whole lot of downside to it um what i do what i do say to people is that you know transitioning is a really smart way to do it um don't don't you know if you're spending five hundred dollars um a hectare on 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 your crop or your your pasture or whatever you happen to be doing and that's your cost structure currently and you're looking to transition just carve off, you know, 10 or 20% of that and put it into something like biodynamics and just transition gently because, you know, everyone's still got bills to pay and mortgages to pay and so on. So we don't want people having a fright by just going cold turkey. I went cold turkey and, you know, it, it had its consequences, but that's I guess that's the kind of guy I am. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that. But um, but doing it and transitionally and doing it with, you know, small steps and, and engaging with others who have already been on the journey, that's the... That's the lovely thing. And your, your mention about comparison before reminds me of a, a, um, a wonderful quote that, you know, the only, the only person we should compare ourselves to is our former self, you know. So, and, that, and, and that's my yardstick is that um, it's hard, you know, like it, it is hard to be, non, to be non-judgmental and, and um, you know, sometimes um, uh, that's human nature, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really... Uh, it's a positive thing when I can just think about, uh, you know, the improvements I'm making in my own business, in my own, you know, um, my own person, um, and and comparing myself to how I used to be, which again wasn't a bad thing. What I did wasn't necessarily wrong or bad. It's just different, and and that's, for me, that's a, you know, I can see and feel the progress that we're making, and I, you know, I'm really keen to share that with others, um, because we've got to, you know, the. the whether it's environmental or human health, which are so intrinsically linked, you know, they're both not looking so good at the moment, you know. So, and the, and the great thing about regenerative agriculture is that, you know, it's addressing the environmental um, disaster that, that that's facing us. Um, and at the same time, those who are engaging in regenerative agriculture are actually producing nutritionally dense food, which combats head-on so many of the, the diseases and so many, so many of the topics that you look at um, – in terms of human health, it's like this this whole thing is a bit of a no-brainer. If we're really serious about saving, you know, the planet or mankind or both, um, for me, that's uh, 
it's an easy decision to make. Mm, absolutely. I mean, if we're omnivores, we are what we eat, eats. And if we're veggie yeah. or vegans, we are what our veggies and plant foods grow in. It's as simple <laughs> as that. So we're all affected by the land and what we eat and where it's grown or or what it eats, like everybody's affected. So it's so important. And I yeah. mean, have you seen, like something that I love about biodynamics um, is some of the science around the improvement in mineral content of the soils. Mm. Um, is that something that you want to have a quick chat about? Because I think it's pretty damn impressive. Yeah, look, I, I guess the, um, uh, the, the there's the improvement in mineral content. There's the, I mean, a lot of that comes back to the improvement in organic matter. Um, you know, the more organic matter there is in the soil, the more water holding capacity, um, the more life, in the, you know, the more biota that can be generated, the more the more um, minerals that are essentially made available. So and a lot of the time, a lot of these minerals are already there. You know, we, our, our country at Burra was had, had, well, we haven't spread super for 15 years, um, but, you know, that country had been had super, uh, super phosphate spread around for, oh, decades. Um, a lot of that's still there. And so with biodynamics and other organic and regenerative um, practices, that can be unlocked. So, and it's not about adding minerals; it's about unlocking and making them more plant available. So that is an absolute, um, absolute, um, uh, you know, wonderful outcome of of, of regenerative agriculture and, and biodynamics, um, uh, especially. Um, and you know, it's an interesting stat that that um, uh, just in terms of a the result or the the, the produce that um, biodynamics can can um, the outcomes of using biodynamics in Europe. Um, you know, which is a, a fine wine growing part of the world, um, biodynamic wine represents about 1% of the, um, of the area uh, or amount of wine that's produced in Europe, but it, but, but it represents 50% of the trophy winners. Wow. Yeah, so there's, 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 there's something in that. You know, and, and <laughs> there's the a lot in that. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> the wonderful thing about wine as opposed to, a lot of the other food we, we eat, you know, wine is, is sold on taste. And so it's a very, uh, whilst it is, you know, it, it's subjective, I guess everyone has their own taste, but, you know, that's important. If people like something because it tastes good, they're going to buy it. And, and this is the same with all biodynamic produce is that it just tastes better, you know. And I'd love to get tasting, and this is one of Hamish Mackay's um, intentions, you know, is that we get more tasting um Opportunities, you know, whether it's in schools, um, in in the Stephanie Alexander type programs, or, or or any other the initiatives there, that children actually develop their sense of taste because that's what that's the that's the that's the tool I use to work out whether something's essentially nutritiously dense or not. If it tastes good, you know, it's so so. Um, I love that. I love that. Um, that that is a um, that's a that's one of the outcomes of biodynamics is that the the nutritional density of, of it. In it, you know, the, if you can do simple, simply do tests on it with a with a refractometer or a BRICS monitor, is you know with the, with the, the the juice of a tomato and, and, and measuring that with the with the BRICS meter, and the you know they're off the charts of biodynamic produce because they're just nutritiously dense. You know, the sugars are heightened, but the nutrition is heightened, and so um, I think it's exciting because that's you know that's the source of our our health. 
Yeah, super um, exciting. And I wonder whether those wine judges are taking a sip and going, oh, God, that's good. Like, as in, it's so satisfying because it's actually more nutritious. As, as <laughs> Like, I wonder whether our brains know things that yeah. we can't even compute often. I think it's super interesting. I think yeah, I, I have no doubt. I mean, we are, whilst we have lost a lot of that, um, uh, that, that perception, I guess it is, or that tool, you know, of, mm, of understanding that we yeah. exactly we have, but you know, cattle haven't, animals haven't. You you put a mob of cattle into a um, into a uh, a paddock of say oats that's been sown, so it's got oats, a monoculture of oats in the middle and around the outside. There might be three or four or five, if you're lucky, um, you know, plant species that have survived <clears throat> the couple of years of cropping. Um, they go straight to that outside first because that's where the smorgasbord is. You know, they know what they want. They can pick and choose. If It's like going to a buffet um, and there are only being two things to eat. It's pretty boring and you get sick of it quickly. But if there's, if there's something that – if there's a selection of 20 things, you can pick and choose as you feel. And animals are very discerning and they – you know, food as, menace, food as medicine applies um, 100% to animals – so you know what we what we do at, at, at Hannah Minow is we we're we're focusing on improving increasing the biodiversity of of our pasture base so that at any time of the year they know what they need and they can select that because it's available. You know if if there's three species in a in a pasture, chances are there's a whole lot of stuff and nutrients they're not even getting that they need for their health. So immunity is better. You know general health and wellness. Their stress levels are lower. You know, it's just like us when we're... Mm, better we've fertility. Got a Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah, look, I can't rave on enough about it. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But I'm going to stop you there me. and ask you a question. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, obviously, in Australia, uh, and, you know, it's different in different parts of the world, but most of our country is desert land. Um, many farmers have experienced the horrendous effects of drought, especially this past couple of years. It's been a real shocker. I, I chatted to farmers all through my book tour out at Gundawindi and, and places yeah. like, um, uh, gosh, where were some of the other more remote places I went? Um, oh, West Wyalong. And, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I really got out everywhere during this book tour. It was amazing. And, um, and, and I'm curious to see... Uh, whether, I guess, what you have to say about water sequestration, like being, being ready for that rain, um, and whether you have some, some anecdotes or some, some confidence builders that this is really, when it comes to drought, that biodynamics and regenerative ag really are um, going to help farmers be more resilient in, in the face of things like drought. Yeah, well, I, I guess you know to try and keep it simple. It, it, for me, it's all about um, what's well, it's it's a, it's a couple of things. One is is focusing on what you're in control of. So what I said before is um, I can't make it rain, and it may not have rained for a very long time, but I know it's going to rain one day. So how can I prepare myself and my farm and my you know, my, my my business for that for that rain event? Um, so it's sort of thinking thinking um, ahead. Uh, and and the tool we can use, of course, water. What we we need rain to grow to grow plants, you know. And, and in this case, we're really talking about grass, um, you know, out west and and, and the, the native and some maybe some introduced species out there. Um, we need the rain to fall. So um, in a very extended dry periods, where where you know, if the if the plants aren't eaten, which is half or well, more than half the problem, is that 
um, people uh, who 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 you know they they feed themselves into a drought by um, by by eating all the grass they have as a resource that they have. And now, um, just as an aside, but a, but a salient point is you know one of the greatest changes I made in my in between my ears was I I. I went from loving my cattle more than my grass to loving my grass more than my cattle. I still love my cattle, but if I, once I made grass my priority in terms of maintaining its health, then it was easy to make decisions about selling stock. So for people anywhere, whether you're you know, Bega or Bawarana, um, the, the principles of um, uh, of loving your grass more, which d- then helps in the decision making of well, if I'm going to retain a- a- and maintain the the health of my plant base, whatever that might be, and it mightn't be very much if it hasn't rained for three years, um, whatever is there, I want to I want to stay there because I want it to capture rain when it falls and it finally does fall. So to do that, I've got to stop the I've got to remove the things that are eating that grass. Now I, I can't stop the wind from blowing. And I can't stop, you know, bushfire and other things that might remove that grass. But what I can do is remove the animals. Maybe not kangaroos. That's a whole other conversation. But if you know, selling stock early, selling cattle and sheep early, um, because I'm, you know, one needs to retain that ground cover. Um, that's really important. And you know, um, when when people and again, we used to feed stock. We had cattle on adjustment all over the place. You know, in Queensland and all over New South Wales, and we spent a lot of money feeding grain and hay to cattle and sheep to get through a drought. We were battling battling droughts. So when when we stop battling droughts and when we actually – because no one could ever tell you when a drought's going to finish. So how long do you need to be spending money selling, uh, um, buying uh, fodder and hay and so on to feed animals? So so what we – we get rid of animals early and we retain our grass cover. So back to your question, when it does rain, you've got, got something at least – um, that may retain the water and, and make it stay where it lands. So, and that's where it's best suited, not down the river into your neighbour's dam or down the creek. And is that what so, happens when your grass isn't there and it just falls on the dry dirt? That's it. Well, there's, there's the initial impact of the, of the water landing on the on the ground. So there's, a, there's, there's sort of these minute sort of, um, I guess, splashes and which creates you know movement of soil, which isn't necessarily good because then it becomes liquefied and it, it could travel sideways. Um, often when you've got an open paddock or, or, or landscape with, with very little grass cover, it's getting baked by the sun, so it forms a very hard crust. So when the, when, so the, the rain, um, when it does hit, it doesn't penetrate that ground. It's more likely to go sideways depending on the gradient. So, you know, we're losing – the thing we've been waiting three years to get, it finally falls and, and we're not able to, to, to retain it. You know, it's escaping. So, again, it's about having grass cover and ground cover in whatever form and shape that is to keep it where it lands. So, you know, and and then if if the if the soil's been baking in the sun with no cover, then the biology of that soil is going to be very, um, very much reduced because you need moisture in that in that profile for that biology to be ready to then help germinate seed, to 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 restore the health of the plants that may have survived through that three year period. You know, so we've got so many reasons why um, 
retaining some ground cover, if at all possible, is really important. And, and again, focusing on getting rid of livestock early and before the markets crash too. Is, that's the other thing from an economic point of view. So there's a few key things people can do. And again, I didn't do this. 15 years ago, I was doing the opposite, you know. Um, and it was through those courses that I mentioned before that I, I really started asking better questions and like, why aren't I selling stock before I, you know, before the market crashes? Mm, it's kind of hope and a prayer farming, isn't it? It really is, you know, and um, it's all about, you know, I, I love the, the expression um, of uh, the definition of luck. You know, luck is the, is the confluence of preparation and opportunity. You know, so, you know, when the rain falls, let's, let's you know, when that opportunity um, uh, of rain falling is there to, to greet us, let's be prepared for it by retaining ground cover. Or I mean, that, 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 that rule applies to so many different things. You know, just get prepared and think about how you're going to um, adapt to the situation but also, um, uh, you know, be as, be as effective as you can. Mm. And have you personally as a farmer felt more resilient in the face of these um, recent droughts as a result of those changes? Absolutely, yeah, I have to say. Because um, it would still be stressful, right? Uh, look, it has its challenges, absolutely. <clears throat> there are different decisions that need to be made. Mm. Um, however, the principles still apply. We, we you know, our long-term stocking rate um, over the last sort of six to seven years, we're probably um, 70% of that. Um, and those six or seven years have had you know, some, some reasonably good years in there. So we haven't had to destock a whole lot because we're keeping ground cover and we're keeping our landscape healthy. We haven't had the ups and downs in 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 um, in the seasons that that we may you know, may have um, experienced uh, before. Um, so you know, and mentally, um, I'm not as stressed. Um, you know, our, um, we. we because we're prepared and because we're adapting to the season, there isn't the the magnitude of challenges. And again, it's about focusing on what you're in control of. So, you know, we're we're preemptive. You know, we're not responding. We're we're actually being proactive in our decision making. So, um, you know, I, I it's you know it's controversial. Some might say that droughts essentially are man-made. In that, um, you know, uh, I'm not talking about climate change. I'm talking about when, when, unless it's three or four years down the track and you just haven't had any rain and everything's been eaten by kangaroos and, and the wind's blowing everything away, even if you did retain the ground cover that you could, um, you know, it's 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 really um, uh, it's in our hands as to how we um, how, how we've managed that um, uh, that landscape. And you know, if we retain, if we keep cattle and sheep on our landscape and they eat the grass, that's when you get a drought. You know. Um, I, I, I try and call them extended dry periods because you know the impact of a dry period isn't isn't as much if you've retained ground cover, and then when you get out of a of a dry period, you're much healthier to then go. I'm going to buy some cheap stock because everyone else has just sold all their stock. You know, so there's an economic rationale behind it as well. So as far as stress, very much less stressed. Mental health, you know, that's one of the wonderful things. And there was a survey done uh, last year we were involved in. Um, and it was um, the results of that were essentially that um, uh, you know the, the the wellness and and the the um, the wellness of farmers involved in regenerative agriculture is very much better than those who aren't because wow. they're actually more in control. Yeah, like, and mental health is that. a huge issue in our farming communities. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think 
it's um, it is it, it's a it's a it's a real for me again it's a bit of a no-brainer you know that that you know what's really important here you know the 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 state of my own mental health the state of my family's the landscape health you know all these things um, should be uh, you know in my my world you know paramount and um, you know when we were conventionally farming we were really at the whim of so many other different things so uh, and my mental health wasn't that crash hot I probably didn't really understand that at the time but that was you know the tension event or tension events that led me to this change and um, unfortunately some people have to get to that state of mental health for this change to take place mm. but again quite that's, apocalyptic that's... humans aren't we we really wait for the SHIT to hit the fan <laughs> before we go oh maybe we've got to do yeah. something yeah it's the fear of change and and I think and again the wonderful thing about regenerative agriculture and this this community of people is that you know, people have done it before. You don't have to make those disastrous mistakes necessarily to get to that point anymore. You know, people people are there to guide and help and support um, people to get through those sort of the the ups and downs. So, um, yeah, it's it's and and again, it's that it's it's the space between your ears and sort of we we seem to be more comfortable. Um, uh, you know, the, the discomfort um, we're currently experiencing is. Is um, uh, more attractive than the than the than the changes that we might have to go through, and the fear of that, you know, which is kind of crazy. Because, I mean, for me, change is always a good thing, and I I didn't realise that till you know all those years ago. Yeah, you can get a bit addicted to change, can't you? Like, hey, what can I do next? <laughs> what can I do to get it better? Yeah. Yeah, that's right, and I think that's that's a really good point. You know, you know, people and change is always healthy if you sort of. You got a bit of an idea, a bit of a plan, a bit of a few, you know, a bit of a vision for where you hope that change might take you. So, um, uh, not a big fan of change for change's sake, but absolutely, you know, always, constantly, never-ending, never, you know, improvement of ourselves and our businesses and our 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 state, you know, mental, mental and physical is. Um, that's uh, I mean, that's really what you, um, your podcast and, and what you're about, isn't it, Alex? You're, sure you know, is. that's, yeah. That's the. That's the that's the that's paramount. Yeah, um, and speaking of change, <laughs> it's a good segue into uh, this next topic on carbon emissions. Um, mm-hmm. Like the thinking is that we all need to go vegan to save the planet. This is very a very big movement right now, and we've got a, a whole bunch of wonderful vegans in our community. I will never tell anyone what way they have to eat. Absolutely not. Um, but I will sure. um, educate people as to how we can respect and understand each other um, as long as we're all making well-intentioned and really well-informed decisions about what we are eating and where that comes from. And, uh, and I definitely agree that we need to eat less meat because if we eat a bit less meat, it means we can afford really good quality meat. Uh, and then we can bring much more plant diversity and variety into our diets, which is great for our microbiome. I mean, it it stands to reason that we should just eat a shed ton of a variety of excellently produced food. That's basically mm. what we need to all be doing. Um, totally. And I love the awareness uh, that communities like ours and many others have uh, worked really hard to uh, distinguish um, good ethical regenerative agriculture sourced meat versus factory farmed and really rejecting um, animal cruelty in farming processes Um, but in terms of uh, ditching meat to save the planet I can't see once I start talking to regenerative biodynamic farmers who are producing 
um, meet, such as yourself, Joel Salatin, a whole bunch of other people. Um, it looks to me like there is a really important place for um, animal agriculture in actually regenerating our soils um, mm. faster than it seems many other forms of farming can do. So I'd love to hear what, um, you know, it's quite a foreign concept to a lot of people that you could actually eat meat and do good for the planet. Walk us through it. Well, it's a great question. Um, I guess just taking it back to, you know, the, the saving the planet um, uh, comment, I mean, I think if, 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 if saving the planet, um, it, it, for me, it means um, we've got... Uh, the core of, of, I guess, saving the planet is relating to carbon in the atmosphere. Um, uh, without going to the argument of how it got there or why and so on, I mean, if, we, if we're all agreeing that we, we probably need to put that back in the ground um, and where, where it originally came from, whether that was as a fossil fuel or as, you know, a, a tree that got burnt or whatever, you know, if, that's, if we all agree that that's a good thing, um, and I certainly do, then we've then got to look at, well, how do we do that the most effectively? And there's lots of there's lots of ways we can do that. And, and um, Paul Hawken in his book Drawdown um, looked at a hundred ways, you know, uh, uh, that, that humans, you know, with technology that's currently available, can actually um, can do this essentially. And if you group together all of the regenerative agriculture practices that he's mentioned in that top 100, it's 2.4 times more effective in sequestering carbon and getting that back into the ground. Um, than the very next method. So, and he's, he's, he's looked at that from a very scientific objective point of view. He's gone to the science, he's gone to the experts, and he's put that together. And it was Charlie Massey who actually put that together in, in, in that way that let's just group them together and go, you know, if we're all making decisions and looking at and how we as individuals and whether you're a farmer or an eater or whatever, you know, can actually make a difference here, supporting regenerative agriculture, you know, Looking at it objectively is, without a doubt, the most effective way to do that. So that's 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 a fact, and that's that's pretty that's that's a, that's a wonderful thing to have on the table. And so, um, if we then look at okay, well, what does what does regenerative agriculture actually mean? Um, there's lots of things that sort of fall into the definition of regenerative agriculture. Lots of practices. Um, one of the most effective tools to do that is using livestock. Um, putting aside whether you're eating them or not, that's, that's a whole other scenario, but, but livestock in landscapes, eating grass actually sequesters carbon into the ground. And they do that by simply, if, if a grass is allowed to grow and express its grassness and, and, and you know, be a, 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 you know, a healthy plant, its roots are at least, the, the height above ground that you see, the roots underneath are at least that, that depth again and probably another half depending on the species. When that grass is eaten by a cow or a sheep or a goat or something, basically the same volume or proportion of root matter um, senesces in the ground and um, releases carbon that was organic into the ground um, and, and stores in that sink carbon. Right, so that that plant has taken carbon out of the, the atmosphere as CO2 and through the photosynthetic pathway it's basically in this in this grazing, and then the senescing, um, and then sequestering in the ground. You've actually put carbon that was in the atmosphere where we've all agreed we don't probably need as much, or we'd like to get it in the ground. And these 
using cattle and grass, you've just put it in the ground where it can stay for thousands of years. So, and the other, and the wonderful thing about this very simple process of just putting carbon in the ground using plants and livestock is that the more organic matter you have in the ground, the more water holding capacity the soil has, the more healthy and mineral avail more available the minerals are in that ground, um, the better food it will grow, whether it's still another plant or a carrot or whatever. So we're, we're using, again, partnering with nature to work out what's a really effective way to not just grow food but to sequester carbon. Livestock are central to this. And, again, if we can all agree on, on the effectiveness of using livestock in there, we're all, all agreeing on, well, we've got to do something with this carbon, otherwise we're you know, on the way to rack and ruin, then that, for me... Um, is as far as I, I need or anyone should need to take the conversation. In terms of, obviously, you know, um, I'm a livestock grazer and, and I, I produce beef, lamb and, and pork and we sell that to eaters. I mean, um, we don't need to go, you know, there's another conversation around, um, you know, the, the, ben the, the, the benefits that I believe and there's a lot of science around it in terms of the, the, the health benefits of eating, you know, red meat and other, other protein sources, uh, animal protein sources. But in terms of purely their their role in saving the planet, you know, it's pretty clear to me. Um, and, and, and you know, I'm not a big fan of feedlots at all and industrial farming. Um, you know, these animals are allowed to, in these environments, graze in this way, express their cowness, they're happy. I mean, everyone's got to come to our place and just see how... how um, how happy in um, yeah! I really want to come visit one of these days. Yeah, you have to. Sure. Yeah, we mm. we probably have an open day in spring. We're thinking about it. We've had a lot of requests, and we're just sort of thinking about how we manage that. So you absolutely, or you, or you can just come as a as a personal guest of mine. Oh, um, thanks. So um, no, I'm I'm excited about showing it off. Um, not to be a smart smarty pants, but just because you know I like to show people what can be done and. Um, so look, I trust I've answered your question there. It's, yeah, definitely. It's, um, yeah. It is. It's such a big topic as you, as you've outlined, mm. and um, you know, again, if we're if we're looking to save the planet in the terms of already sort of outlined, and to do it effectively, um, the the cattle are, are, are pivotal in all that, and sheep, and 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 goats, and and kangaroos, and every other you know life form. I mean. Um, you know, there's a lot of animal life out there that we don't eat, mm. um, and it's and, and and all those herbivores and omnivores are, are playing their role in this. You know, yeah. so there's a whole lot of bison that used to be roaming the American plains, 90 million of them. Um, they're not there anymore. Mm. Uh, but what we have, I think in the states is about 90 million cattle. Mm. So if we look at in you know the last 150 years, 200 years, um, the amount of uh, it's a whole other conversation about methane and um, uh, and nitrous oxide and, and, and other greenhouse gases, um, we haven't actually changed the balance of, of emissions very much. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation about, you know, does, does more come out the back end of a cow and grass or in a feedlot? Um, and that's probably a conversation for another time. <laughs> yeah. I know. We've been chatting for a while. I just saw the clock and I'm like, well, this was never going to be a short conversation. Oh, that's a, well, well, I hope that's a good sign we're having some fun. I yeah, think. yeah, totally, totally. Um, okay, so uh, I'd love to ask your advice as someone who has had a lot of conversations with probably a lot of local political members, uh, um, uh, organisations that represent 
um, meat farmers, for example, um, and mm. some of the uh, ethical issues, say, around genetically modified grain feeding and a huge other one, um, live export. How yeah. do we um, – they just seem like such big issues to tackle. And, of course, we can always vote with our forks um, by yeah. abstaining from meat that um, is fed GMO grains or is uh, then sent off in part for live export. But ha- are there any ways that you see as being effective for us to take a bigger stand in our communities um, writing letters in your view to politicians picking up the phone and all those sorts of things really work because sometimes we can feel a bit disheartened when they still are issues that we're we're seeming to to not get to the end of it's a great question and i I guess to be blunt i i I think the bit in the middle of politicians which may may you know be part of the um uh, that all that process between the issue or the farm or the live export issue and the and the customer or the the um, you know the public sort of um, outcry, I I put them to one side to be honest because um, they they will respond to um, stimuli and the stimuli that works best is as you say voting with your fork um, and and something I guess you know I have to say politicians aren't used to, aren't necessarily used to is is transparency you know. If, if we look at if we look at one end of the of that whole equation being the farmers and you know whether they're exporting um, animals or, um, or, or or producing GMO or growing GMO or whatever it is, the more transparent that process is, their operation, their intention, their agendas, the more transparent they are, um, uh, the better. Um, and the better, the other end of the equation of the eaters, the better their questions are, the better outcome. So, I was involved in a in a in a, in a um, project some years ago, and it was relating to um, creating uh, um, projects and incentives, uh, initiatives in New South Wales agriculture. And it was really interesting because the group I sort of formed with others was about transparency and trust. And the outcome we were looking for is for people to ask more questions. You know, transparency, just this the perpetual transparency of a situation, and are people asking more questions, getting them to the point of absolutely trusting what 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 the situation is, and this is the this is the power farmers have if they're transparent through social media or however mean whatever means that is, they can they can really empower themselves and those of their their customers or their eaters with everyone understanding how things work now. Um, in back to this project, when some members of our project, um, their definition of trust was was telling people what they thought they needed to hear, and then stopping them from asking questions, going trust us, we know what we're doing. And for my mind, that's the sort of that's the strategy that the GMO, um, you know, uh, producers and so on, and, and and those in the industrial farming sort of side of things, that's what they um, that's their that's their tactic is like we're going to tell you what we think you need to know to stop you asking questions. My, my 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 stick is you just keep asking questions because I want to tell you I've got nothing to hide and you know I want to I want to excite you I want to inspire you to buy the food I'm growing because that's good for you it's good for me and it's good for the environment and it's totally the different the different totally a different tactic to um, you know industrial farming in all its different variations so you know asking better questions leave the politicians out and just be transparent and honest and open. And, look, with social media nowadays, um, it's good and it's bad, you know. I think farmers um, 
have the tool to be transparent and, and show people they're not hiding anything. Yeah, I love um, it. I put in my book, I put in this morning's newsletter, always ask where did this come from, who's making it and what are their values and am I okay with the answer to those two questions? Is it in line with my values? Will I put it in my shopping basket? That's totally just if we keep on asking, then yeah. we keep we almost get better at um, at sort of uh, living by our values in a more confident way. Because often when you're first starting out, you just think, oh, but I'm busy, so I'll just have to get it this once. Or, oh, but, you know, it's cheaper, so I'll just have to get it this once. But the more you ask and the more you realign yourselves with your values every time you buy something, the harder yeah. it is to actually shop against them. And, um, yeah. and that's really where we want to get to. We're, but we're, and it's about being discerning. You know, we, mm. we create a, a, a high degree of discernment when we're really clear on what our values are, as you say, and also, you know, we need to make a decision, you know, um, as I might have mentioned before, you need you need um, information and you yeah. need goals. If one of your goals is to be healthy and not eat chemical food, let's just say, um, that's great. Oh, does this food have chemical in it? No. Well, I can make a decision about that. But mm. until you know, have that information... Um, and if you're not getting that information from, you know, people with agendas around food production or processing or whatever it is, that's the, the, they take themselves out of the um, out of the market uh, then and there. And again, I think it's a wonderful point you make that, you know, eaters, the more discerning they can be, and the, you know, the better they are, the more healthier they'll be. And I, I, you know, I always ask people, do they, you know, do they have a doctor? Mm. And they. Um, and, and say, yeah, yeah, I do. And what's their name? Oh, you know, Dr. Smith or Dr. Who, whatever it is. You know, <laughs> they know. And they say, are they important to your health? Yeah, absolutely. How often do you see them? Oh, every six months or 12 months. Mm. Great. Um, who's your farmer? Mm, yeah, and they, they look at me like I've got two heads and they, and they yeah. go, what do you mean? And I go, well, how often do you need a farmer? Well, three times a day. So, like, so you need a farmer three times a day, you don't even know one, don't have any connection to a farmer or the farming you know, practice or property, and you have a doctor who's really important, but you only see them every 12 months. Like, why? What, what, what's not right there, you know? Um, so I encourage people to, to know a farmer, you know, and, and who's their farmer, and there's this great hashtag, you know, know your farmer, which is wonderful. But I, I'm a much bigger fan of the hashtag, who's your farmer, because, you know, when someone asks you a question, you can't help but answer it, even if it's only in your head. You know, and if I ask anyone who's your farmer, they go, "Oh, I don't have one." Then that sort of then you know that prompts them to think about, well, maybe I should, and you know, who that might be, and where do I find one? And it's like they're out there; they're just dying to to to, to be known, and they're dying to sell you their wonderful produce. So, mm. um, I love I it. I think you know, yeah, I think it's a it should be a real catch cry for any farmer. For anyone in the world, really, to ask each other, you know, who is your farmer? Because once we can answer that question, mm. you know, it mightn't be just one farmer, then we've we've got a direct line of sight to our food. Yeah, I think that's a really good um, challenge for everybody this week to take a picture of something or share something across from one of your favourite farmers' Instagram feeds. Put it on your own Instagram feed. Hashtag who's your farmer. Uh, and low tox life, so we can find you and um, and just share a little story about them, why you've loved shopping from them, sourcing your produce from them. I think that'd be a really nice way for us to all connect on this topic this week. That's mm. cool. I love that idea. And as mm. I saw a great one the other day, it was something like um, the farmer in your fridge. 
mm-hmm. there was a picture of a guy in like a big stand, walk-in, you know, clear-fronted <laughs> uh, fridge, and he was like there, yeah, like trapped. It was a classic. So I mean, I think that's another one. Like, who is in your fridge? You know, yeah. is it is it is it um, is it some generic crappy brand? that you probably shouldn't be feeding your children. Person or is in a lab you coat really, versus you know, a person yeah, in overalls. Exactly right. yeah. yeah, with his, with his beaker and yeah. his um, Bunsen burner. Yeah. Um, or, or is it a guy standing there with his, you know, his dungarees on his hat and he's on his horse or something? You know, like, is it, like who, who are the people we want to be we want to be teaching our kids are the, are the, you know, what's normal. One of my things is what, what is the new normal in, in our, in the lives of our children, you know, in relation to food and farming, you know, I want it to be normal for people to, for children not to go to supermarkets, you know, mm. I, I, I want it to be normal for them to actually be going to properties and, and there's a wonderful place at Byron Bay called The Farm. Oh, we and, love that place. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you can turn up there and, and um, uh, you don't have to spend a cent. You can go and, Talk to Bobby, the, the rooster. He's a classic. It's worth just going, travelling from Perth to get there just to check out <laughs> Bobby um, or Robert to his mates. Um, and there's pigs and there's cows and there's chickens and there's vegetables and there's some wonderful farmers there growing amazing produce that's going back through the Three Blue Ducks, the restaurant there, um, uh, the Bread Social Bakery, and I've just started a new flower shop there. And it's such a wonderful – they've got honey, they've got macadamias. It's such a wonderful – you know, for a lot of children I see – turn up there they've never been to a farm mm. and it's not like a five thousand acre farm it doesn't matter they've got all of the makings of that education you know um uh that 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 inspires children and go wow this is this is where you get the food comes from yeah not not a packet in the middle aisle of a supermarket oh totally i spent some time in a supermarket for research recently and i was like Oh my gosh, you know, they're selling a, it was, I put it on Instagram uh, yesterday uh, at, at I our, saw it. our time of recording this and um, it was, uh, a, a, you know, rainbow, something rainbow to inspire an exciting morning and it was just a picture of basically Fruit Loops but the next generation using non-petroleum based colours. That's literally the only change. Everything else is just as bad. And, mm. uh, and I was like, yummy rainbow rings? What the <laughs> Yummy, <laughs> yummy. So that's a great point. Let's let's redefine the word yummy. You know? Yeah, so. yeah, and exciting. It's all got to yeah. be redefined. Yeah. Like, yeah, those those kids those kids are going to have yummy um, holes in their teeth soon, and yummy headaches, and yummy <laughs> yummy ADHD meltdowns before yummy their melt- school um, day. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but um, you know that's a great point because it's the you know again getting to the who's making decisions. It's the mums and dads who put that on the on the table mm-hmm. in the first place, or so we'll pick yeah. it up off the shelf in the in the. Um, in the supermarkets and the kids are the next ones to pick it up the next time they go shopping. So it's, it's you know, it's just such a responsibility, isn't it? And, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I'm loving what you're doing, just identifying that to people and giving them some really good tips and clues and guidance on uh, on your low-tox life. So, oh, you know, hats off to you. Thank you. Now, one last question. What are you most excited about moving into the future of farming? Like what, you know, what I see is that you keep getting bigger and bigger audiences of farmers coming to the talks that you guys are organising and it just feels like there's a real groundswell of people coming together. Is that what excites you the most, just seeing more people interesting or is it something else you want to share? Well, I think... That's certainly one of them, and, I, and these these things sort of snowball a bit. I, I think getting more people to um, to events, whether it's a conference put on by a landcare group or it's a you know a biodynamic workshop we put on at Burrawa or any gathering of like-minded people in the regenerative agriculture space, <clears throat> that's exciting to me. 
and as you mentioned, that there's more and more people coming together. Every every event is more people, more bums on seats, and <clears throat> that's 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 exponential. And, and I guess that's exciting because I see paradigms being broken. I see practices changing. I see results, and 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 I guess the next step from that, which I'm most excited about, is the is the outcome of that. You know, the outcome of all this change is going to be more nutritious food on tables, healthier people, a healthier planet. You know. Children who are more in touch with their food, children who actually take up farming, um, you know, and, and, and understand that, you know, that what, what normal food production actually entails, you know, animals and plants and the whole thing, how nature works, you know, forming partnerships with nature. Um, and it's not just children who can, you know, sort of um, move into the farming space. It's people who are um, – this is one of the really interesting things is there's a lot of people looking for tree or seed changes, you know, their accountants and their – I don't know, lawyers and, and, and what, you know, like a profession in a city um, with a desk job essentially with, with little um, contact with nature and so many, I see more and more um, moving out, looking for a change. You know, they've had sort of whether it's been a health um, tension event or it's just a lifestyle change or whatever, doesn't really matter. The fact is and the wonderful thing is they're moving out and they're breaking paradigms, and they want to be part of agriculture. You know, like this is the this is the interesting thing that that the, the biggest the biggest word in agriculture is not basically there anymore. You know, mm. when people think of agriculture, the culture is like oh, depression, drought, mm. you know, yeah. um, banks coming in, taking property, whatever it is. It's like we need to. It's got an um, image problem right now. That we need. Yeah. Well, it is. Well, it used to, you know. Mm. I think this is the, the back to your question. Excitement is that, you know, it it offers um, and affords people a wonderful lifestyle if it's if it's done in a regenerative way and regenerative practices and a different way of farming. Um, you know, growing your own food, reconnecting with nature. I mean, children growing up in nature. Uh, I was. I'm really grateful that I I did. You know, we were out every day. We were on horses. We were on motorbikes. We were in. You know, I. Un- there's not one strain of post or tree on Hannah Minow. I can't tell you a story about from when I'm being a kid. Mm. And, you know, in the world of Rudolf Steiner and the development of children, that first seven years of just becoming one with yourself and nature, we are the same thing, is, is critical. And, you know, screen time, processed food, bad thinking or, you know, I guess, um, you know, being, being, being subjected to, bad thinking whether it's family or whatever world you know that really has a lifelong detrimental effect so um i guess back to your question you know this 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 culture this revival of culture and agriculture is, is the most exciting thing for me awesome I'm so thrilled that we got to have this bumper conversation. Uh, if anyone has stayed with us right to the end, good on you. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Maybe it took a couple of cups of tea and two different washing baskets to fold, but um, but we got yeah, there. Yeah, well, my, my wife's kindly come in with a cup of tea and a bowl of nuts, so um, she, she <laughs> She's knows. She's worried about you. <laughs> yeah, what's happened to him? <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. It was an awesome chat. Uh, I think it's so important that we... Uh, we chat to our farmers. I absolutely love bringing farmers on the show um, often so that we keep those conversations alive and people really bring back into focus where our food's coming from and how we should prioritise uh, our line of questioning to, to get get to the good stuff. 
yeah. and I wish you all the best with everything that you do. And uh, in the show notes today, everyone can connect with your work, start following you on Instagram, and um, maybe come along to a biodynamics workshop. Totally. We're, we're, we have, can I give a quick plug? We're, we've Go got, for it. Um, we've got um, one coming up in September on our website. We'll have it up there and release the dates in September in at Burrawa. Um, we've got one in um, in Mudgee in September as well. Uh, we uh, There'll be more at the farm at Byron Bay in spring. Um, we're going to be down in Victoria, um, down near Dalesford as well, Like and there's one at um, uh, the, the uh, Central Coast in New South Wales. We're going to be all over the place, so um, hopefully there'll be one close to you. And, and look, it's a, it's a wonderful two days. Hamish is, is an extraordinary educator because he, you know, the, the, the subject of biodynamics is, is enormous, but he... He he makes it very practical and very very um, uh, accessible. You know, he'll take you to the to the end of the cosmos literally, and then he'll bring you back with a really practical anecdote, a story, and very very grounding presentation. So, um, and it's not just you know you don't have to be a farmer who's growing food to do this. You can be in a backyard. Just be even being a parent. It's critical, I believe, that we we have the right tools and information and knowledge to sort of make good decisions, even if it's just about buying food. So. Um, and Hamish is a wonderful present, uh, presenter. So, and can I just give your your own podcast a plug? The one we did with Zach Bush. Ah, oh, it was a goodie, wasn't it? Oh, he's a legend. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think he's coming out next year. I heard a whisper the other day. I did too. I'm, yeah. I'm keenly watching out for when that will be. We'll, um, yeah. We'll have he's to, a legend. Yeah, we'll have to accost him like a fanboy fangirl out the <laughs> front row. <laughs> Okay, I'll get the T-shirts, mate. Yeah, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Thanks so much once again, Charlie. That was awesome. It was a pleasure and a real honour to be uh, speaking with you, Alex. Um, uh, All the best. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action. And there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.